0: Today's scripture reading is from John chapter two, verses one through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come.
1: When I was in high school, um, I didn't really think about the big questions in life, but my older brother was a little bit of an armchair philosopher, so he cornered me and said, so what's the purpose of life? I thought about it for a while and well, uh, my purpose is to be happy. And he, in his wise judgment, said, yes, that's it. Now, we may not frame our purpose in life exactly that way, but we really do, I think just about everybody wants to be happy, everybody wants to have joy, everybody wants to have celebration. I mean, I don't know many people who are saying, you know, um, I really want to become much more unhappy or... You know, I can't wait to to get depressed. I I wish things, I I wish I didn't feel so well. Uh, Now, we all want to be happy. And so we take different paths towards it. Um, I saw an interview with a lead guitarist of a heavy metal band once. And he talked about his road. And He said, I lived everything. I had this dream, and the dream didn't involve drugs and treating women like objects year after year, which I did. I couldn't stop being bad to my body. I was like an animal. Words can't express how lost I was. Being a multi-millionaire, not being able to find the meaning of life, I didn't like the religious aspect of Christianity and hearing about it. And so we have here a person pursuing life, and he found it was really a dead end. Then he considered Christianity, but that seemed so constraining to him. But he continues... I didn't like the religious aspect of Christianity and hearing about it. But Christ, the indwelling Christ, changed everything for me. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. God is so real. He's not some religious guy in the sky. We have different paths. This guitarist found the path of Christ to joy and happiness. It's a path he offers all of us. Let's pray. Our Father, open us, open our eyes, open our hearts, our understanding to this first miracle of Jesus. May we find it, in it his way of life and that we don't just see that intellectually today, But Lord, you move that into our hearts and you weave what Jesus wants to do in our lives, deeply into our lives. In Christ we pray. Amen. As we've seen in our study of the Gospel of John, it opens with incredible claims about Jesus. Some that Doran just read, that he is eternal, that he is God, he is the light of the world that is broken through the darkness, and he came to live among us. And then the, the book moves to a testimony from John the Baptist that those words are true. Jesus, this Jesus, is the Messiah. And then last week, we saw that Jesus now moved among the people, and he called his first disciples. This morning, we look at his first miracle. And we look at the 11th verse, summarizes it all, and it says, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this first miracle is described as a sign. The significance of the miracle is not in what was accomplished, but in the message that it sends. Now, if this miracle was performed to wow everybody and have them come to the realization that Jesus was Messiah, we would have expected, first of all, that it would be much more public. Instead of a small setting, we would think a massive crowd. Instead of only a few people, even at that small setting, the master of the feast didn't even know what Jesus had done. We would have expected many more people to understand what jesus had accomplished and it was a pretty insignificant miracle compared to the others for instance if we were going to make a top ten list of jesus's miracles probably at the top would be bringing lazarus back from the dead and and those other miracles then it might be casting out demonic powers from people Or giving sight to the blind, helping the crippled and lame walk, feeding thousands and thousands of people with just five loaves of bread. But here we have a miracle so that the bridegroom will not be embarrassed. So it's not what this miracle accomplishes that's so important. It's the message that it sends. One literary genius said this, if you were inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, you would never, for the inaugural sign, include a miracle ministering to a mere social embarrassment. That isn't the way I would start my book. But it is the way Jesus started his ministry because the power the importance of it is the message, the sign that Jesus gives. And we see this uh, this carried out even in the next interaction he has with his mother, that this is more than just what's physically happening. This is a message. So, verse 3 says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus says to Jesus, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Um, Is anybody confused by this? (laughs) What's happening here is, first of all, Jesus' mother comes to him, and he uses the term woman instead of mother. And that sounds very shocking. Uh, It's not a very intimate term. But it's not a disrespectful term either. When Jesus is dying on the cross and he looks down at Mary, he still uses the same words, even though his heart is poured out with love as he's trying to provide for Mary. He says, woman, this, pointing to John, or referencing John, the author of this book, he's your son. He's going to take care of you. So it's not disrespectful, but at the same time, it's not very intimate. And what's happening here is Jesus is moving, and he's making the statement to his mother that my allegiance is not first to you as mother now. My allegiance is to my father, and I'm going to be doing his will. So Jesus is thinking in a whole different plane than his mother is, and that's why he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Uh, literally, what he's saying is, what's this between me and you? Or in our ver- vernacular, we're not on the same page about this. Why aren't they on the same page? Because the woman is thinking about physical wine. Jesus is thinking about spiritual wine. And so she, thinking physically, says to the servants, do whatever Jesus says to do. He, thinking on his plane, is thinking, what I am going to provide in the spiritual wine for people is going to come in my last hour. I will provide the physical wine now, but my hour has not yet come that hour which is going to produce the spiritual wine for all of us. So, again, what this miracle is about is a sign proclaiming what Jesus is going to bring us. And what is he going to bring us? In short, he's going to bring us joy and a celebration of life and eternity. Now, this is the opposite of what a lot of people think Christianity is. Ask a person on the street, and joy is probably not the first word that comes to their mind when they hear the word Christian. But that's what Jesus is bringing us. We see this in the setting of the first miracle. It takes place at a wedding celebration. Perhaps the most joyous times in a person's life. And you see this thread of celebration and parties throughout Jesus' ministry. He gives a parable about a woman who loses her coin. And it says when she finds the lost thing, she calls her neighbors and celebrates, has a party. When the shepherd loses one sheep and he goes out and he finds it and he brings it back, he calls the neighbors and they have a party. When the father has lost his son, who has turned away, gone to another city, wasted all of his money, and then comes back, the father embraces him and kills the fatted calf and throws a party, a celebration. That theme runs throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ. Even at the Last Supper, he says, I'm not going to drink this cup till I drink with you again. Essentially, at the marriage feasts of the Lamb. Jesus is all about celebration. And we see this in the transformation of the water into wine itself. The passage says there's six stone jars for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So, do that multiplication? 120 to 180 gallons of water are turned into wine. Wine is a symbol for joy. Psalm 104.15 says, And wine to gladden the heart of man. Passage after passage in the Old Testament talks about when The day of the Lord comes, the wine will be flowing. Joy is flowing. And we notice here that Jesus doesn't just provide a few cups of wine. A hundred and eighty gallons of what? The best wine. The master of the feast is surprised at how the bridegroom has waited till the end to bring the best wine. What's your picture of Christianity? Is it one of celebration and joy? What's your experience of Christianity? Is it celebration and joy? 150 years ago, a well-known preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said this. He said, I do not think that the church rejoices enough. We all grumble enough. And we grown enough, but very few of us rejoice enough. Isn't it wonderful that things have changed in the last two centuries? <laughs> Do we rejoice enough? So, this miracle is a sign. It's a sign that Jesus has come to bring celebration and life. But what does that mean? How is that life? coming to us? What is that life that is coming to us? And the book of John is going to lay out many images of that life. This passage gives us a couple. We go back to those six containers of water. What type of water were they? That said six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. In other words, they would come and they would wash their hands, but it wasn't because, you know, your hands are dirty, let's wash your hands off. It was a picture of ritual cleansing. So Jesus takes these jars, Jewish purification, which really represented the old Jewish system. And the way it was being lived out in his day, it was oppressive. The legalism of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, was oppressive to the people. There were, what did we say, 163 laws, excuse me, 613 commandments in the Old Testament. The Talmud added thousands more. The Jewish people were expected to know and follow every single one of them. Heavy, heavy burdens were laid on them. When Jesus comes, he says, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Is that what you feel as a Christian? I remember being at a a, a prayer, uh, prayer conference, and we broke into small groups. And I think this was one of our passages, but one of the pastors said, What does this mean? As a pastor, it's such a, my life feels like it's such a burden. How is Jesus making, giving us a light yoke and an easy burden? And of course, he's contrasting it to the burden that the Jewish religious leaders had laid on the people. But how does Jesus, whose commands reached more deeply than those of the Jewish leaders because they reach down into the very heart. He says, it's not just murder that is breaking the law of God. It's when we have anger in our hearts. It's not just adultery, but it's when we have lust in our hearts. And so Jesus' law goes even deeper. One of the reasons it's lighter is because it goes into the heart. And he says elsewhere, that all the commandments flow from two. Love God and love your neighbor. Is that not true in your heart? Is not that what you want? Do you not understand? Do you not feel that life revolves around love? And so that should be in our hearts, the desire for love to be loved. And what we receive from God is His love. And then the commands help us to understand how to live in that love. Love for God and love for others. And so when we realize this, then we see that God's laws resonate with our hearts and resonate with our deepest desires. We align with these they're not something that is oppressively put on us, but something we want to live out itself. In a second way, his laws are not a burden, is because of his love for us. We love him, and we love him by keeping his commandments. Uh, my wife and I wanted to go to movies and she wanted to go to Little Women and I wanted to go to Star Wars. (laughs) And so we were planning, let's find a time, they're both happening and you go to that one and I'll go to this one. Well, uh, week after week went by and I wasn't sure the movies are going to be in the theaters much longer, so I saw and I I set it up a Valentine's present, we'll go to Little Women. And we went to Little Women. She loved it. Just last night, I was saying, you know, I looked, and I'm glad we went last week because uh, Little Women's no longer there, neither is Star Wars. And she went, oh. She's... (laughs) But she did. She said, what a sacrifice you made for me. And my answer was... It was no sacrifice because making you happy is what makes me happy. (laughs) But is not that what's really at the heart of our relationship with Jesus Christ? He loves us so much. We love him. What makes him happy is what makes us happy. His commandments are not a burden when we when we look at it in that way. So joy comes because, first of all, the burden's taken away in following Christ. And secondly, we see in this passage that Christ brings us a new creation. You'll notice there are six jars of water. And we see that this is part of a theme that John runs throughout the book. He begins with the words, in the beginning, which immediately bring us to a realization that God is talking about creation. We're going to see the culmination of the book is when Jesus dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. Precisely what God said after six days of creation, he said it is finished and he rested. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished and he rested his head on the cross. And so when we see these six water pots, we are realizing what Jesus is doing is there's an old creation that has been damaged by sin that has twisted our lives. And Jesus has come to bring it new, to bring... A new wine into our life to make the old new. We all know this world is broken. Turn on a news channel, it's undeniable that this world is broken. And if we're honest with ourselves, we look inside and we know we are not the people we want to be, we are broken. Sin has broken our relationship with God, it's broken our relationship with one another, and it's broken our relationships with ourselves. We have put ourselves on the throne of our lives instead of God. We are looking out for ourselves for number one first instead of others, and we surround ourselves with defense mechanisms in our own personal lives because we can't face the truth about ourselves that's what sin has brought but Christ comes to bring back reconciliation with God where God by his grace embraces us in the fullness of his love and gives us new life a new relationship with him that cannot be broken And God gives us the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit to bring us in a love relationship with one another. At the foot of the cross, especially the church itself, is made one, where we are to consider one another more important than ourselves. He restores our relationship with one another because I am no longer in competition with you. Because I have Christ, I have everything. So I don't need to fight you for anything. So I am now open to loving and looking out for you. And we can drop our defenses. Because if the God of the universe accepts me as I am because of what Christ has done, I can accept myself. And I can live authentically with myself and in front of you. Jesus Christ frees us from those burdens of sin. He's going to go on, and say, "He's the new temple. He's the very presence of God living among us. that He offers a new life, a new birth. Old things have passed away, all things are new. He offers a new well of living water. He offers a new way of worship in the spirit, not the outward, but that which flows from a heart bubbling up for the glory of God. And he's going to continue with all the miracles he does. Each is a sign of something Jesus is bringing. Light of the world, he gives us sight. He's the good shepherd. He cares for us. This book is going to go on and on to show all the wonders of what Christ has come to bring that brings us joy. This sign brings the general truth of what he comes to bring. The others will be more specific. And so, how do we get what Jesus is offering How do we receive it? And this first miracle shows us as well. Very beginning it says, Jesus was invited to a wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, we have no wine. If there was wine, Jesus never would have performed this miracle. But there was no wine. There was a need. To receive what Christ has to offer, we begin realizing we have no wine. That apart from Jesus Christ, we are lost. The religious people of the day, they had no wine. They, they pursued religion as a way to earn and make their way to God, but instead it had just become a burden and hadn't brought them any closer to God. Their self-righteousness moved them further away from God. Now, people like our guitarist at the beginning of our sermon this morning, he, he, he had no wine. He sought it in money, sex, drugs, fame, And he came at the end and said, I have no wine. I'm so bad. And in fact, everything he pursued as a path to God apart from Christ was actually an idol. He was seeking to find fulfillment in these things. And so they had become his God. Because God alone can fulfill us. So we have to admit, too, we have no wine. That we have sinned. And we are destitute. And we cannot make up for our sin. We cannot make, the, make it right. The prophet Isaiah said, all our righteousness is as filthy garments, or ESV. All our righteous deeds are like polluted a polluted garment. See, even our righteousness is sin. So we can't make it. We're, we're all without, without wine. But in this miracle, once they're willing to see they don't have wine, Jesus makes wine for them. At what cost? Well, Jesus says it when he says, my hour has not yet come. Remember, Mary is thinking physically, need physical wine. What can you do, Jesus, about the physical wine? Jesus is thinking spiritual wine. For the physical wine, Jesus just had to say words. To produce the spiritual wine, Jesus has to face that hour. My hour has not yet come. And is speaking of the hour of his death. John weaves this concept of <clears throat> the hour throughout his gospel. Keeps saying the hour hasn't come, hasn't arrived yet, the hour's not here, until he comes to John chapter 12. And he tells a parable about how seeds have to be planted and have to die if they're going to bring life. And then he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. See, there's two meanings of wine. One is joy and celebration. The other is blood and death. And Jesus took the cup that night, and he said, He took that cup of wine. This is the new covenant, the life of joy in my blood, shed for the remission of your sins. Jesus Christ took all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness, all of our self-righteousness, all of our pushing him out of the way to pursue life on our, our own way, he took that upon himself so he could bring that new life, new relationship with him, new relationship with one another, new relationship with self. And John will say, all you have to do is believe. He's not talking about an intellectual action. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus died for people's sins. We need to believe Jesus died for, I need to believe Jesus died for my sin. Each of us needs to believe that. It's so, it's pictured in a parable Jesus gives about two men going up. One's very religious. He goes up and he prays and says, God, thank you that you made me so wonderful. You didn't make me like these other sinners and that guy that's next to me, that tax collector guy. Uh, I I do so many wonderful things for you. Thank you, you made me so great. And the tax collector, who is kind of the lowest of low in that culture, can't even lift his eyes to heaven. He simply says, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, asked the question, which one went down justified? Which one went down in a right relationship with God? And the answer is not the one who did so many wonderful religious deeds. It's the one who said, saw he was without wine. I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. The one who trusted not in himself, look at what I did, I did, I did. But the one who trusted in God, what you do be merciful literally the word is propitious it means god you have to satisfy your justice and holiness in regards to my sin because i can't do it and that's what jesus christ did on the cross the christian life begins with that act of faith and then we begin to grow and walk in that newness of life a life that should be a life of joy and celebration One preacher asked and answered a question. he said, "What is it that most to me? Why is it that most people are not worshiping God?" They're saying, "I had an upbringing in the church. Now I want to enjoy myself." Their view of Christianity is, "Suck it up, keep your nose clean and save me from hell." That's a common thought about Christianity in our culture today. That's not the Christianity of the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Peter wrote, Though you do not see Christ, you love Him and you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible John said, I write these things that your joy may be complete. The master of the ceremonies, Jesus himself, said to his disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. That's true Christianity. Our Father, we thank you for what Jesus Christ has done for us. May we not take a path away from the abundant life that you offer, but we we pursue it. Not an abundant life that brings us physical wine, an abundant life that brings the spiritual wine of new life, that takes away the burden of legalism and self-righteousness. The life that gives us light and hope and eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.